as we have seen in weeks past, the book of Micah focuses on justice. In fact, our title, Walking in the Name of the Lord, comes from the passage we're going to look at this morning from Micah chapter 4, verse 5. What we've been trying to do as we work through the book is figure out what is uniquely part of the Christian view of justice and injustice. The Bible declares from beginning to end that God is a just God, that he's interested in justice. In fact, the word righteousness that we use in the English, in the Hebrew and in the Greek, is directly related to the word justice. In fact, we still see that even this morning in the relationship between just and justified, right? Okay, so this is a primary part of God's character. He is a God of justice. And therefore, it's a primary part of walking in his ways. And what we've been trying to do as we look at Micah is draw out the unique aspects, the unique resources that we as Christians can draw on as we live in a world of injustice and try and follow the ways of God. And this morning, we're going to see one of the most unique, which is hope. Okay. And so here in chapter 4, verse 1, read with me. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and, my, or, and peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, and shall decide for strong nations far away, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation." neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of the hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Let's pray. The book of Romans declares you, Father, to be the God of all hope. I pray that you would help us to get reacquainted with that aspect of your character this morning. I pray that you would give us eyes to see long distance across the corridors of time all the way to the consummation of all things, a period where you set right what is wrong, a period where you wipe away every tear, a period where true righteousness and true justice reign on the earth to the joy of all. And I ask, Lord, as we look at this, that we would be able to see where we fit, even in our day and age, in relationship to this time that is to come. Send your spirit to teach us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. This is a favorite passage. It's one that you would find on a verse of the day calendar, 
right? In fact, it's one that probably rings a few bells even as you read it. In fact, it's one of the few places where I tend to prefer the King James Bible translation just because it's got such a beauty to it. And so it says, uh, it says uh, there in, um, in the tail end of verse 3, nation shall not lift up sword against nation, nor study war no more, right? It's just got this beautiful cadence to it. If you're Hamilton fans, you probably recognize this passage because it's part of George Washington's closing speech as he steps down that he desires to sit under his own vine and his own fig tree, right? Drawing from this passage. It's beautiful, but most of the time we encounter this passage or most of the passages like it, we uproot them from their context and we miss something significant. Okay. If you've been with us for the last three chapters, this is jarring in a very good way. It's a hope jarring, but it's surprising to find it here, okay? because primarily Micah has been criticizing the city of Jerusalem and prophesying the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. In fact, just look back one verse with me in chapter 3, verse 12. Therefore, with all of his anger, Micah says, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Now read verse 1 again. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills. You see the contrast there? It's intentional. We can miss that because we tend to stop at chapter breaks when we read personally, or we tend to stop at paragraph ends when we work our way through the Bible as a church. But here, there is a juxtaposition of these two things. And we can, we can talk about it pretty simply between present tense and future tense. right? And you see that again in verse 1. It shall come to pass when? In the latter days. Okay? Whatever that means, it means not now right? It means sometime TBD. But still, Micah has just finished telling people that this is the end of the temple. This is the end of Jerusalem. And yet he still sees a glorious future. And not just for Israel, but for all the nations. And that's another thing. For Micah so far, he is focused entirely on a single people group of a single ethnicity that make up a single nation under a single king, the people of Israel. And specifically, the two and a half tribes of Judah, because that's all that remains. Half of Israel has already been wiped off the map by Assyria. He's been focusing on them, and suddenly, he doesn't even really talk about the restoration of the people of Israel or anything. He talks about Jerusalem being the center of the known world. A place where, you know, all nations flock to learn, to resolve their differences, to go home and change their own nations into the image of the ways of Israel. And of course, the consequence of that that we see okay, is peace. It says here that they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. They'll dismantle their nuclear arsenal. Right? They'll take apart all of the weapons of war because they will no longer be necessary and they'll turn them into tools of prosperity. Okay. <clears throat> On top of that, it says uh, 
that nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither will they learn war anymore. And so they'll stop, you know, reading the works of Sun Tzu, the art of war. They'll stop having military institutions. The entire military industrial complex globally will be out of business. Nations will exist in a global peace. And on top of that, we see in verse 4, prosperity. Notice what it says here. They shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. Okay. What is that? That is, that is equal prosperity. That is everybody having a plot to call their own and a fruit to enjoy and the rest to know that their work will yield its benefit. And then it adds, and no one shall make them afraid. Now remember, there are two audiences in the book of Micah. There are those who are committing and perpetuating injustice and oppression. There are the powerful who are using their power to take advantage of those who are weak. There are the wealthy who are using their wealth to take advantage of the poor. But obviously there's a second audience implied in Micah, and that is the weak and the poor, the disadvantaged and those who are treated with injustice. And so there's hope for them right here, that there will be a time where they will be safe, protected, no longer at risk, okay? If we had to use a modern word to describe this passage, it would be utopian, which I always really find funny because the, the word has such strange roots. Uh, utopian in the Latin means no place. And, and when Moore wrote his book, he was trying to do the opposite of what we've taken up, which was to talk about how silly utopian ideals are. But that's also something we all know instinctually. In fact, if you're not a Christian this morning, it's really easy to read this text as a cynic and go, great, it's a beautiful picture, but it's not real. Okay. But I want you to recognize this morning that there are additional reasons why Micah's audience would feel that that we can't even relate to. For most of us, you know, being middle class and living in a Western society, we are not on the cutting edge of experiencing oppression. Okay. But the audience he's writing to here, they live in the depths of difficulty. They're impoverished. Or even if you take Israel as they read the book of Micah and they're existing in exile. You know, we saw last week the response to Micah's message when he says the temple's going to be destroyed. They go, that'll never happen. Right? They're so prosperous at the top of the food chain that they say there's just no way. God is with us. Just look at the prosperity. And instantly Babylon comes in, wipes it out, and removes them from their land. But that is such a shock. And it's so significant that you can imagine to these words, how does Micah's audience respond in exile? It'll never happen. It's over. God is through with us. We've lost our opportunity. We'll never see Israel again. The temple, temple will never be rebuilt. The sacrifices are no longer happening. It's clear that God has abandoned us. All of these were major statements made by the audience of what we call the exile prophets like Ezekiel, who spoke to the people post the destruction of Jerusalem. And so when Micah paints this vision here, in some sense, 
it is further away than we can imagine it. Because remember, this is before the existence of utopian humanism. There's an entire movement that thinks if we just educate the world, if we just make the right moves, if we just try a little harder, we can build heaven on earth. But for this audience, they're abandoned by God. They're exiled, conquered by Babylon. In fact, if we were to pick a front runner for who's going to educate the world in its own image, it's going to be Babylon. And they're going to do it the same way we always think nations are going to do it, which is by the sword. They're going to conquer and beat the world into submission. And so even here, right in the midst of the ways of war and all the danger of violence, here's a vision of an entire world that from their own desire flocks to Jerusalem to learn the ways of peace. In that sense, this passage is more utopian than we give it credit for. It is impossible, not just unlikely. But, but I would tell you this morning that Micah understands that. And so does the God who sent Micah. In fact, notice what it says in verse four. But they shall sit, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. God says, according to my word, this will happen. And it's worth remembering just right here in the context that God's word also led to the destruction of Jerusalem. In a sense here, Micah says, the same God who by his declaration destroyed Jerusalem can rebuild it. Okay. But also there's a broader reality that we can look at here. Okay. Now, I want to just lay one more piece of groundwork before we start to think about this passage this morning collectively and what it means for us. As I mentioned, this is a passage that concerns the future, the latter days. It looks way down the corridors of history, but not totally. Look at verse 5. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Now, if you don't read that last verse carefully, you could think it's also part of this future reality, but it doesn't fit, does it? Because what we've just learned is that all the nations are going to walk in the ways of Jehovah, the God of Israel. In fact, look back at verse 2. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. Right? So he envisions a day when all the nations will walk in the way of Yahweh willingly and desire to. So how does he reverse it in verse 5 when he says, for all the people walk each in the name of its God? It's because he steps back from the future and comes back to the present. And so what he does in this last verse is he makes a contrast, not about the fate of the future, but a contrast about the way people live right here and right now. And I would suggest to you that this verse is just as connective tissue to the days of Micah as it is to ours. And notice what it says, for all the people walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. What I would like to suggest to you this morning is that as we look at this hope, we need to do so in a way that recognizes that hope concerns the future, but changes the present. Right? 
And what we've been talking about in the book of Micah is repentance. That's been the primary call, that Israel would turn away from its behavior and turn back to the ways of the Lord or else. In fact, as we saw last week, the tail end of chapter 3 works. These words, this threat of the destruction of the temple, Hezekiah, the current king, listens to him, according to Jeremiah 23, and does put in place some reforms. And so the destruction of the temple doesn't happen for another hundred years. Okay? Jerusalem stands for many more kings, although it begins to decline again, and this time they don't listen to the warning and the exile actually happens. All right? And so the call there is a call consistently and perpetually of repentance. But it is the same call for those who exist in exile. Turn back to God. Now, again, let's put ourselves in their shoes. Here you are. You never thought you'd see the day. You never thought you'd happen. You thought that God was on your side. You weren't able to own up to your own crime. So you see yourself as innocent and righteous, and then it's all gone. And you and your family members are marched off in chains to a place hundreds of miles away that you've never been to live out your life as second-class or bottom-rung citizens in a foreign nation. Okay, Everything destroyed. What is the temptation there? It's despair. Right? It's what's the point. In fact, in the worldview of the day of Micah, the God who wins the wars is the God worthy of worship. He's the one who conquered. Every battle scene you see in the Old Testament is a theological battle. That's how everyone in the ancient world read these things. And so what does that mean? We thought Jehovah was powerful, but he's been conquered by the gods of Babylon. Now the prophets spend a lot of time saying that's not the case because God is the one working here, and you know that because he told you this a hundred years before Babylon was on the scene, Right? But still, there's this temptation to go, well, when in Rome, or when in Babylon, right, to become Babylonian, to embrace those ways, to despair. Interestingly enough, the synagogue that still exists today was birthed out of the exile, a way for Jews to maintain their Jewish identity in a foreign land. So that's not what happened. And one of the reasons it didn't happen is because messages like this from Micah, which recognized God's character is unchanging, and so are his plans. You see, when God mentions here the temple being exalted, world peace and prosperity, it's not the first time it's come up. It has been the plan since the beginning, even if you go all the way back to Genesis 12, verse 3. Right, the beginning of Judaism, if you will, or the beginning of the people of Israel, or the beginning ethnically of the Jews, right, with one man, Abraham, and his wife, Sarah. Go back to that place, and what is the promise that God makes? He says, Abraham, I will bless you, and I will bless your descendants, and through you, all the nations will be blessed. That is in seed form what we're reading right here. What is striking in this passage is that God hasn't changed his plan, despite the unfaithfulness of his people. Okay. Now we can talk about hope. Now we can consider these things. And there's a few misunderstandings I want to deal with, and there's a few implications. Misunderstanding number one. 
clearly what we read here is not some sort of ethereal, spiritual, private clouds and harps salvation. This is flesh and blood. It may be heaven on earth, but it's not heaven far away from earth. Okay. It is tangible. Peter says that the world is going to be dissolved with a fervent heat, but we are anticipating another kingdom, a kingdom of righteousness, a kingdom of justice. Okay. God has plans to set things right, and it's not to abandon the earth, but to reform it, to remake it to restore it, okay? And that's always been the plan, and we see that here, and so we have to watch out for this salvation mentality that basically says the world is going to hell in a handbasket, but I have an escape plan. Have you met Jesus Christ? Okay. God hasn't given up on the world, and so he's going to go, well, here's a way to get out of it, and he's just going to take you out of the world. Now, we have a hard time with that in our you know, 21st century American Christianity because we've lived in a world so influenced by Christianity, it's created a mythology of Christianity. And we've embraced all of these ideas like that heaven is in somehow disembodied, where you read 1 Corinthians 15 and it says, Jesus was resurrected bodily, so shall you be. Just take your picture of heaven and read the tail end of the book of Revelation and ask yourself if it really lines up. Where are the clouds and the harps, for example? Right? So much of this is popular culture, but really God's plan is about this world, okay. about the future of this world, about setting things right on this world. Okay. The second place that we need to set aside, the second misunderstanding, we need to understand that this is not the same thing as a secular humanism, humanism version of the future. Now, the goals, the ideals of this passage clearly are world peace. It's a no-brainer. The question is not if the world wants it. It's that we don't know how to get there, right? But the vision is the same. Equality and prosperity. Sign me up. Right? Nobody goes, actually, I envision a world that is the opposite of these things. These are things that are consistently identified as universal goods. Okay. So the difference here is not in the ideals. The difference is the recognition that this is not something that we can do. Okay. Humanism believes that if we just educate more people, or if we just put the right people in power, or if we just win the right wars, there will be no more wars. And we've been working this really hard for about 250 years, okay? And it's discouraging. In some ways, secular humanism is a young man's game because eventually we begin to despair. But also notice that it's not compatible with this passage. It doesn't say, and in the latter days, Israel will finally get their head on straight and they'll get in the program. Israel's not even mentioned. This is not the works of men that are going to bring this about, but the works of God. And to some degree, the surprising works of God because of what, we've, what we do, what we're making, what we deserve, right? Injustice is a human condition perpetuated by humans. 
Something that doesn't just flow outside of us, but can, as we've seen with covetousness, flow through our very hearts. And so the striking thing in this passage is God says, even still, I will do this. Okay. And there has been a response to that ethereal, over-spiritualized escapism heaven to mistake passages like these as the agenda. We are to make heaven on earth. You'll hear them say things like, we are to build the kingdom. But again, explore your New Testament. That's not the language that's used. Jesus will come and set up the kingdom. That's the language that is used. Okay? But... As we see in verse 5, that doesn't mean that there isn't a present tense significance to this. Okay? And so that gets us to the third passage, which is a passivity that basically says, look, there's nothing we can do. This is going to take nothing less than a work of God. So we need to just sit and wait. We can't change the world that it is. Its destiny is the same until Jesus returns and sets everything up. So we should just settle. But I would suggest to you again that's not what Micah envisions here. He says, then God will accomplish his ways, therefore we shall walk in his ways now. The future changes the present. And this is the ways of faith. Hebrews chapter 11 is this record of how all these different people across the scriptures have lived lives of faith, believing in the promises of God. And I want to show you something this morning that's easily missed because we're so familiar with the stories, we tend to think, all right, by faith, Abraham had a child when he was 100 years of age, and Sarai, you know, uh, who couldn't have children, has a child, right? We focus on the miraculous happening. But what the author of Hebrews wants to draw out is the big picture promises that are given to all those people, to Abraham and to his descendants and all the people along the way, none of them live to see its fulfillment. I'll prove it to you. Turn to Hebrews chapter 11. And really quickly, I just want you to notice verse 1. Verse 1 is definitional. What is faith? According to verse 1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. You see how faith and hope are connected right there? Faith is the present tense action in response to future tense hope. And then I want you to read with me what it says here in verse 13. This whole list of people he's been talking about, verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God as he has prepared for them a city. Now, what I want to draw your attention to is that language in the middle of strangers and exiles. 
Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say tourists. The idea isn't, God has this other destiny for you, but until then, just enjoy the world as it is. Strangers and exiles means you don't fit in. Strangers and exiles means wherever you live, you live there as a foreigner. Right? That's the idea. And the reason is because you represent another city, another place. That's why the New Testament uses the language of ambassador. Right? We live here, but we live for there. But strangely, we are chronological ambassadors, ambassadors from the future, representations of a kingdom that is to come. And that's where faith comes in, because they're living out their lives as citizens of a city which is to come, the author of Hebrews says. Okay? And so let me put it in the language of, of Micah. But we will walk in the ways of the Lord. And so here is the difference. It's not we do nothing because one day God will set things right. And it's not if we just work hard enough, one day God will put the capstone in and it will be done. It is we are confident of what God is going to do. And so we will live representatively of that reality now. Again, that's what an ambassador does. It represents the place that it's from. Okay? And so the idea here is that we as the people of God, and let's just move it forward to our language, the church of Jesus Christ, we are to live our lives in a way that pictures where history is headed. And this is alternative of our normal way of thinking because the rational way of life says, this is the way things are, therefore I'll assume this future. But faith says, this is the way things will be, therefore I'll live this way right now. That's what's involved in this passage, okay? And so here are the implications for us. It means that we should be concerned about justice and living lives of righteousness because we are confident that that's where the world will end up. It means that we seek to embrace this life because we know where it's headed, Okay. But do you see how easy that is to mix up with trying to build the kingdom here? And that's the place, I think, where the church experiences the same discouragement and despair as all of our non-Christian neighbors. As we go, all right, we know the living God. We know his character. We have all of the facets of Christianity, which means real forgiveness and reconciliation. And those are things we can experience right now. But in the big rollout, in the universal, we don't seem to make any progress. And more often than not, whatever progress we make is hijacked by the world getting into the ways of the church. And now it's Christian in name, but not in practice. And again, that's something that Micah understands. That's his whole critique of Israel. And so we discourage. We despair. We look at life as it is and we settle. Those of you who have experienced racial slurs, those of you who have been afraid of violence because of the place of town you live in or because of your skin color or because of a thousand factors, we can get to this place where the disconnect between what the Bible says will be and should be and what actually is just, just flattens us. 
But this is one of the things that I love about this concept. What I'm suggesting to you this morning is that the ways that we are to walk in are to be a model, right? Just a representation. It's not the kingdom. What we do here is not the kingdom. It's just a representation of it. It's just a picture of it. It's just a sign pointing to the thing that is signified. But the great thing about models is you can build them to different scales, right? My kids love Lego, and Lego builds to different scales, okay? And so there's minifig scale, where you build so it's representative of the little people that come with Legos. But you can also build one 65th scale, right? Where it's 65 sizes smaller than whatever the real life thing would be. If we are called to be the people of God and pursue a model, I want you to recognize this morning that it's scalable. And so that means it's just as significant to shape your family in the ways of the kingdom as it is to shape your nation. Smaller scale representations still represent truly, even if it's not fully. And if you can't bring about total justice, the hope still exists. It's still there. But you can also personify it, picture it, Show it now. Okay. Sometimes we talk about ending particular things. Poverty, racism, these types of things. What we're talking about here is, is not so much trying to end those things as to try and live out a different way of being entirely. To represent the way things should be. Okay. And in that way, the church is to be a model of what's coming. And so the first place, and I've said this so many times during the study, and I'll probably say it a, a, another few, the place where justice begins is not out there. It's right here. It's about being a community where the things that divide other people and the things that manifest the differences between people in unjust ways are eradicated by the blood of Jesus Christ. And I cannot tell you how much ink is spilled in the New Testament emphasizing this. There is not Jew nor Greek. How many times does the New Testament tell the people of God to be one? What is the emphasis there? It is the emphasis against these things. Reconciliation. Even when there is tremendous patterns of sin and in some places even genocide can be set right in the blood of Christ and those who were apart and alienated and even antagonistic to one another can become family. That is the power of the gospel. And so if we are going to walk in the ways of the Lord, it begins here with how we treat and love one another. How we care about and take care of one another's concerns. How we lay aside old sins and ways of being that belong to the old way of seeing life that the Bible calls the old man. And embrace the ways of the Lord. Okay. But the second thing, the second implication here is that when we do experience these things, when we're on the receiving end of violence and injustice and oppression, we still can have hope. And again, that's part of why this passage was written. It's to people in exile who feel like this is impossible. But they can take comfort in the fact that what is wrong will be set right. They can take comfort in the fact that what we can't fix will be fixed because what is 
impossible with man, Jesus says, is possible with God. And again, it is real and tangible. But we all know firsthand, and this is true of hope and comfort in general, how hard it is to actually believe this, receive it, take comfort from it. Why? Because this is intangible and distant. And we live in the here and now where these things are present and in our face. That's what makes that little sentence at the end of verse 4 so important. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts have spoken. Faith is a reciprocal response to faithfulness. In fact, your faith is only as good as the reliability of the thing you place your faith in. Okay? This is why all the time people build dumb inventions and die on them. Why? Because they believe this thing can do something that it cannot do. Like keep them afloat or what have you. Okay? That's how faith works. In the same way, faith doesn't energize or change the object that you place your faith in. If we go down to the Golden Gate Bridge, you can have all the fear of bridges you want, that that bridge cannot support your weight and that it will fall if you cross it. It does not hurt the bridge or its reliability at all. But faith is always a response. And as we saw in our catechism last week, in the case of us as Christians, it's a relational response. When we say, I believe in Jesus, it's different than I believe in science because science is just an objective reality. But Jesus is a person. And so when we say, I believe in Jesus, we don't just mean, I believe that Jesus existed or I believe that Jesus was real. We mean, I believe that Jesus is trustworthy and will keep his promises. And that's the backbone of the comfort and the hope here. What is it that makes this city so real even though it's in the future? It's because its builder and maker is God. And God has said, this is what I'm going to do. Okay. But I think there's another way that we can emphasize this reality. And it's to recognize that God will keep his promises on this mountain, the highly exalted Mount Zion, because he kept his promises on another mountain. The Old Testament doesn't just talk about the day when God will set all things right and the kingdom will be restored. It also regularly talks about the day where God himself will become man and suffer in our place to set things right, not in our circumstances, but in our very souls. Because again, the problem with injustice is not just external. For God to change the world, he must change us. And this is what's so striking again about this passage. These words are written to a people who are literally in the doghouse with God, who have rejected him, who have denied him, who have committed heinous acts in his name, who have refused to repent and are now experiencing the full frontal judgment of God. And he says, but I'm not done with you yet. How can that be? In fact, this is one of the greatest tensions of the Old Testament prophets. How do you put these things together, the failure of Israel and the future of Israel? You can't without Jesus Christ. You can't without the promise of the one who would come, who would pay the penalty for sins and set things right. Now, what is harder to believe? That God can come in and set things right and make this world, or that God would take a rebellious people and make them his children? 
What is harder for God to do, to create a world of justice or to create a world of justice with us? What is more difficult? To rule, as it says in Psalm 2, with a rod of iron so that justice gets done or to bring about forgiveness of a sinful people. God promised all the way back in Genesis 3 that the works of the devil, which is just a different way to walk, to walk a different path, one that is antagonistic to God, that embraces death and destruction and rebellion. He said, I'm going to take care of that. And one day the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. That's the first word before there's this word. And God has been faithful, and he's kept that one. If you stand this morning aware of the forgiveness of your sins, you stand as a testimony of the faithfulness of God. If God has kept that word, he will keep this one. But again, that doesn't just lead to comfort. It leads to change. We live differently. I hate to do this in the conclusion of the sermon because it might flaw the whole thing. But there was a Nicolas Cage movie (laughs) years and years ago called Next. And I don't know if you saw it, but the premise was just that Nick Cage had the innate ability to see just a couple of seconds into the future. And the movie is all about how just that little glimpse means that he actually changes the future because he's seen it and so he can engage in the present. That's just a six-second window But we as Christians know the end of the story. That empowers us to live in a way that actually agrees with the culmination of history. You know, it has almost become trite to talk about the wrong side of history. This is the right side. This is where it ends. This is the final chapter. And we are called as Christians in our place of business, in our families of origin, here as a community in the midst of our neighborhood to live out and reflect, to model the kingdom that is to come. Not to bring it, but because its coming is inevitable. And let me add just one more layer. It is when we do this that the possibility of that future becomes possible to our neighbors. It's when we do this that they start to recognize the power and reality of the gospel. Leslie Newbegin, a Christian thinker who I greatly appreciate, he says it's when we work towards these types of commitments with our unbelieving neighbors that our witness becomes manifest. And he says that for two reasons. One, because we have great resources for failure. Because a loss in the voter box or a loss of a program, or just the, the stubborn persistence of sin doesn't lead us to despair. We fail differently as Christians because we are not the Savior and we are not the King. But also because when there's a disparity and we say, well, we do the same things, but we do it for different reasons. Or when we say, we do the same things, but it's not just the same goals, or it it might be the same goals, but the means are different. When we draw from resources like we've been learning about that are uniquely Christian, it provides insight to the God who is so unique, the Old Testament describes him as holy.
And it doesn't matter how big the window is. The light of God is so bright and so powerful that Paul says in the New Testament, we have this treasure in earthen vessels, right? We're just broken pots, and yet the glory shines through brighter than the suitcase in Pulp Fiction, right? It is this manifest, unmistakable reality. And for many of us, we've experienced that firsthand because alongside of hearing about the God of love was experiencing love that you had never felt from a person who had no dog in the race of relationship. When I first became a Christian, strangers that I just met embraced me as one of their own, started praying for me regularly, noticing when I didn't show up at church and asking where I'd been. I was in high school at the time. Do you think any other kid in high school who wasn't my friend ever asked, hey, where you been? Right? It was such a weird juxtaposition. And I read the Bible with new eyes. And I listened to the sermons with a new voice because I wanted to know what the difference was. Listen. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Let's pray. God, I'm going to ask this morning that you would give our church a very particular gift. I pray that you would give us a creativity rooted in the stable character of God. That we would see the problems around us with new eyes that innovate new ways of being. That lead to different families and different office cultures and lead to different solutions. Ones that aren't caught up in the the venomous antagonism of the solutions of our day, vying for attention, vying for money, vying for them being the only pure ones who are worthy of embracing, and instead like humble servants, like Jesus himself, that we would just give freely and fully of our lives to love our neighbors because we have been so freely and fully loved by you. And I pray, Lord, that you would so stoke the vision of our lives with its future culmination of the kingdom of God, that we would begin to just look for ways, small and large, to model the ways of God, both to bring life in a world of death and to point beyond this world to the world that is to come with confidence, with boldness, and as it says in Hebrews, with assurance of the things that are unseen. Help us to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's worship together.